You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. On today's show, I will be talking to theatre director Lainey Van Sant and dramaturg Taylor Sklena about the play Fever Dream, which opens at MU's Rheinsberger Theatre next Wednesday. And in the second part of the show, I'll be asking for viewing tips and insights from Emerson Van Roekel and Donna Kozlowski about next weekend's Citizen Jane Film Festival. But first, hello Lainey and Taylor. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having us. And thank you for taking time out the week before your play opens Mm -hmm. uh, to come and chat. Is this the most nerve-wracking time one week before the show opens? Um, Oh, I don't know. It's hard to pick a most (laughs) nerve-wracking time. (laughs) (laughs) The opening night's pretty hard because as a director, you have no control anymore. You just have to sit back and watch it happen. (laughs) You know, one thing I've never noticed in plays in Missouri, maybe maybe it's just being done so discreetly when I've watched it at Missouri or local theatre, there's no prompts. There's nobody sitting there saying, like, whispering the lines if somebody forgets it. Nope, they, they have it memorized, and if they forget what they're saying, then they just have to, to figure it out. Fake it till you make it at that <laughs> <Yep>. point. <laughs> if I was the other actor playing alongside, I mean, it must throw them if someone delivers the wrong line. You think, oh no, where do I go now? Do I go back to my the correct line, or do I pick pick up where they are yeah what, what's the advice that you give them oh it, it always just depends on the on the scene right it's <laughs> there's never one answer <laughs> as a as a short sort of sidetrack um from the get-go here i was in a production once where one of the actors got sick and just he just said i have to go and walked <laughs> off of stage and it was set in this kind of like in the round bar um, and there are two other people on stage who he's supposed to be sort of leading the leading the scene, walking them through his his uh, palace or whatever. And they're just like, "Well, you want to go to the bar?" <laughs> and it was the crazy thing. It was such it was such a wacky script that people thought that that was a planned thing later on. This sort of two minute uh, divergence into the bar while this other character was in the bathroom throwing up. <laughs> oh dear, that. <laughs> well, I'm glad they managed to pull it off. <laughs> Yeah. So, Lainey, you're a fourth-year PhD student in theatre at Mizzou, yep. mm-hmm. and you also have an MA in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've graded classes in creativity for bioengineering students. Yes, <laughs> I'm doing that right now. That must be interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really fun, and it it sort of challenges your work to have to explain to an engineer why it's important, right? To to do these creative exercises, so it's it's interesting. Anyone like just mastering it, you see them going into like you no know, language and <laughs> changing um, their degree to oh, theater. And- <laughs> they're they're all very good bioengineers. We get them by the time they're seniors, so there's okay. there's really no turning back. <laughs> but it seems like it's really uh, dramaturgy and theater that is the most fascinating to you, and mm-hmm. do not only direct plays, but you have also written several plays. Yeah. And uh, looking through the list of plays that you've done, it seems like comedy is where you gravitate to predominantly. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little about your own playwriting and your influences. I took playwriting as an undergraduate several years ago and then really I've just picked it up last year. I did two playwriting classes in a row, which turns into writing a lot of plays. And 
Yeah, so I've, I've always been interested in adaptations uh, and things like that, especially from Spanish. This play is a, an adaptation of a Spanish Golden Age play. So that tends toward adaptations of like fairy tales and things when I'm doing my own writing um, or things that are really related to language. Uh, so my probably most successful play in the last year is called Shiver and Shake and it's an adaptation of a fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm, I believe. So. Which, what was the original fairy tale? The Boy Who Couldn't Shiver and Shake. It's not very well known, but a, a boy tries to spend the night in a haunted castle, but he uh, doesn't know how to shiver and shake, right? So he's trying to learn how to shiver and shake, but he's not afraid of any of the ghosts because he's, he, he's he can't shiver and shake. Right, because he can't <laughs> shiver and shake. Um, it's, it's silly, but it's fun, yeah. And Taylor, you're the dramaturg. So what exactly is that? <laughs> this is uh, this is a question that uh, comes up a lot, and um, the the term dramaturg is is one of the more nebulous terms. Some uh, <laughs> different different directors and creative teams will use dramaturgs differently, but at its core, you can think of it a couple of different ways. One, the dramaturg does a lot of research and helps communicate that research to to the actors and sometimes to the audience if there are things the audience needs to know um, through like lobby display and uh, notes and things. And then also the, the dramaturg is an advocate for the play itself and for the playwright and making sure that the playwright's story is what's, what's getting put up on stage. So you're kind of a, a kind of fact-checking, mm-hmm. <laughs> making sure it's being done correctly. Uh, yeah, yeah, more or less. In that's case a, the director a... gets a little wild, <laughs> to reel it back in. <laughs> then I don't have to worry about it, right? I can, I can be, say, tell people to get as creative as they want, and then Taylor can say, no, you can't change the words. That's <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are rules. Right. So, uh, Lena, you're directing the play Fever Dream by mm-hmm. Sheila Callahan, and that opens next Wednesday, which is Halloween yes. night, mm-hmm. at the Rheinsberger Theatre. So tell us what the play is about. Um, like I said, it's an adaptation of Life is a Dream, which is a play by Pedro Calderón de la Barca. Fever Dream is written by Sheila Callahan. Uh, that kind of got edged in before, so we'll make sure that we've said that. <laughs> uh, and uh, in Life is a Dream, there's a king in quote-unquote Poland, right? This is Poland as this guy from Spain saw it, um, who has uh, received this prophecy that his son is going to take over his country and ruin it, right? So he sends his son off to live on a mountain um, for the son's whole life. And then the... Chains him in a hut. So he can't leave the mountain. Right, 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 yeah. Chains him up in a hut so he's stuck on this mountain. Um, And then the king reads in like his horoscope or again another sort of prophecy thing that um, it's time to bring the sun back to lead the country so he brings the sun back to lead the country which of course doesn't go well because the sun's been raised in a hut on a mountain right Uh, so then they take the sun back to the hut and tell him it was all a dream um, and eventually the people rise up and say, no, we want that to be our king. And they really don't give him good. much of a chance. No, they don't. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't really get to do anything in the original play. He just yeah. gets a bit angry, doesn't he? Pretty much, yeah. Um, <laughs> Which you would do if you've been locked up in a hut for you know 25 years or something. <laughs> exactly. And that's kind of what ends up happening here. So Sheila Callahan has moved it to modern day and placed it in a business. So the, the king is the president of the company and the son is in custody 
customer service in the basement answering phones. Right? And when he gets to be in charge of the company, he uses all of these cliches to like try to decide how he'll run the company, right? Like he's going to whip his employees into shape and bulldoze the competition. <laughs> and keep <laughs> his employees like on a short leash. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> so so that is, is fun. <laughs> yeah. So as the dramaturg, within this play, what have you had to do? And, you know, talk a little bit about how Sheila Callahan, she's really brilliant how she matches up all the original characters with the contemporary characters. So even she keeps even the names the same. Yeah, yeah, and it makes it really easy to, to track. There's no question of, you know, what what is the analog character <laughs> in the modern if you if you look at the old old one, you have sort of a Segus Mundo becomes Segus, which is nice. Uh, um, one of the things that I've had a lot of fun researching is the the sort of old quote-unquote old technology um so in the in the opening scene we see uh the basement that that the main character is locked in is is where they basically put all of their all of their old outdated technology and so that that contrast to the new technology that the associates use and they're they're vlogging and constantly on their phones and yada yada so I've, i've been um exploring sort of old old office technology and how that's changed throughout the ages to the modern day iMacs and smartphones and tablets and that sort of thing and trying to um, if you if you come to the show you'll see the lobby display talks about sort of that that transition through the years of old tech into new tech and I'm trying to make sure that you know the the people who have no idea what vlogging and Twitter and boomerang you know are um, have a sense of, of what that is going in um, and the conversely the the Millennials and the Gen Z folks who come in get a little bit of experience with a dot matrix printer and the mimeograph and these ancient ancient technologies ancient that's what it was like when I first started I remember the first office I worked in they had a fax machine and it was brand new and I thought this is magic how does this fax machine work and we had you know the the little the, the a daisy printer and oh yeah or the what, what was the one with the paper that had the holes at the side was yeah. that the daisy printer I don't know we bought the, a lot of that paper though yeah 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 the <laughs> c- continuous feed paper they call it doesn't really yeah. get used nowadays we but. still had telex all that mm-hmm. so yeah back in the day in fact that's one thing I was going to ask you it seems like the props are really important in this play mm-hmm. and so have you I mean have you just kind of built a box and made it look like a fax machine or did you actually manage to find like you know a 1970s we've, we've found a lot of a lot of technology and yeah. I'm I'm not sure exactly where, where Brad or scenic designer is at if there's if there's more he's planning on pulling in but we've got like we, we were able to find a functioning dot matrix printer that, that's <laughs> getting in the set and lots of different lots of different act- actual things that are going on stage we're not just yeah. you know mocking up boxes and stuff right there's a there's a stapler we've taken all the staples out of all the staplers because the staplers have to do some crazy things but but they do work <laughs> that's one another thing i was going to ask you one of the little details i love in the play is the difference between the crappy old stapler that Sagas has in his basement prison and then the electronic glowing pulsing stapler he finds <laughs> yes. in the presidential office and i'm like do they even exist uh well we're gonna make one <laughs> um but that that stapler hits like every aspect of production because it has to go in his pants so the costume people have to deal with it and it has to like open a door so the set has to deal with it uh and yeah it it glows glows. so lights have to figure it out um so everybody everybody gets to handle the stapler (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> that was the prop item that just stood out for me. So I'm glad that yes. it's getting its full due. Uh-huh. So to go back to the parallels between them. So uh, King Blasio, which is the, the King of Poland, the original, mm-hmm. becomes Bill Basil yes. uh, in the modern version. Segis, as you said, become, Segis Mundo becomes Segis, which is kind of an odd name for a contemporary person. The one, the one I love is King Basilio's helper is called Clotaldo, but in the modern version, he's called Fred. Clotaldo. Yes. His last name's Clotaldo. <laughs> <laughs> that just seemed really incongruous. And then uh, there's a Rosaro. She becomes Rose. There's Claren becomes Claire. And then the other, the two that I really like as well, uh, the princess Estrella in the mm-hmm. original becomes Stella Strong. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then Astolfo becomes Aston Martin, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is brilliant. So we have Sagus and he's locked in the basement. He's a prisoner. He's chained to his desk in the basement of his father's company um his father's kind of this international global conglomerate but he doesn't know that it's his father he just knows that he's chained to the basement in this miserable life mm-hmm. and one of the things that it, it says in the play in the direction of the play it talks about just sounds like it's really it's really smelly here we go it says Sagus is wearing a t-shirt stained and foul and a pair of horrendous jeans he is unshaven unwashed his beard is down to his chest and his hair hangs in greasy ropes it talks about puddles of water a drain piles of paper and you can just imagine it's kind of dank and disgusting mm-hmm. and it says you know we can smell the asbestos <laughs> yes. so do, you, do you ever think about introducing odors into plays wouldn't it be hilarious if you could kind of like <laughs> it would be I don't think the audience would appreciate I, it in this one <laughs> you know <laughs> I've also also considered that too. It's, it's harder when when the stage is so big. How do you get the smell to you know per- permeate all the way to the audience? But this is I actually mm-hmm. seriously considered using smells in a smaller black box setting once. You yeah. know, I mean, supermarkets do it. They, you yeah. know, they put the in, in British supermarkets. You smell like freshly baked bread as you come into the supermarkets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm sure that it's you know theatre of the future that <laughs> introduces <laughs> aromas. So anyway, so Sagus is down in the basement. He's chained to his desk, and he's the customer service guy. And and so then how does he tell us about the, the dream transition? How does he get to this other reality? Um, yeah, so that's actually one of the less crazy parts um, <laughs> and one that it relies a lot on costumes and um, and like the scene change. So we haven't done as much with it yet. That's a fun project for this week. But he exits does half of his costume change and then he gets carried back on because he's been like knocked out right and they they'll shave him take off his beard and his wig on stage and then we carry him back out right finish doing our scene change and he finish doing his costume change off stage and then he'll come back in and be set down in the the administrative chair right but then the uh, it's a bike messenger so rather than it being the king's helper that comes to rescue him and take him back to the, the royal court in Warsaw mm-hmm. in this instance there are two bike messengers that press the wrong button and mm-hmm. end up down in the basement and, and discover this kind of wretched creature that's yeah. tied up down there right well um, Rosara and Clarine in the original were really sort of they're on their own quest in both of them, right? Uh, Rose wants to to expose Aston, um, and Fred's the one in charge of coming down and getting him out of the basement and all of that. But uh, 
But yeah, also interestingly, in the the original Spanish version, Rose had to be, or Rosara had to be disguised as a man, and she has a sword, right? Because she's a man, and she's gonna come and get her revenge. Uh, and in this one, she's she can be a woman, right? Because we're in the 21st century, and she's got a pen, because the pen is mightier than the sword. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, right. I hadn't put that together. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so one of the key motifs in the play is this idea of you know what is real, a dream versus reality and I always think when I was reading I was thinking about the Matrix you know the Truman Show mm-hmm. there's other very contemporary versions of that but even in 1635 when the play was originally uh, put on it, it wasn't an original idea then so in Plato he talks about uh, the allegory of the cave in his work The Republic where he imagines mm-hmm. that there are these people just chained to a wall and all they can see is the cave wall they can't even look around them but there's a fire behind them and so all they see are shadows of objects being carried by people and so that is their reality is this idea of these shadows that's all they have and so they give the shadows names and one day one of them gets taken out of the cave and he's first of all he's blinded by the fire and then he's blinded by the sun and it's just what is this this is a dream this is not the reality that I have and so this carries on through this play and so Taylor talk about that moment (laughs) when when Segis arrives in this other world and his uh, his experience of this other reality on the 77th floor. Well, and I think you, you really hit the nail on the on the head there with the idea of like, what what is reality? That being dropped in this thing that is something you have never experienced in your life. Uh, you begin to question your own your own idea of reality. Um, there's another there's another um, sort of philosophical analog that I that I really enjoy. Um, I forget the exact philosopher, but it was a Chinese philosopher who talked about dreaming that he was a butterfly and dreaming it so vividly that when he woke up, he wasn't sure if he was uh, a human that had dreamt he was a butterfly or a, a butterfly currently dreaming he was a Chinese philosopher. <laughs> um, and I think that that that's also a really a really helpful way to look at it that. Being, being dropped into this totally implausible uh, scenario uh, of being the head of a company that you have you know dr- dreamed so long of, of becoming that you don't know if that is if that is real or not and then if you're put back down in the basement you know was this all a dream was it not um, who's to say mm-hmm. and one of the things that's really interesting about this fever dream that Sheila Callahan wrote to sort of support this idea of what is what is dream and what is not is as as he takes on this this leadership role and is trying to uh, figure out how to run a business, we have those moments of of kind of literal metaphor of keeping your keeping your uh, employees on a tight leash and these very like magical elements that start coming into play that that almost make the audience question, okay, is this real or is this not? And so it's taking that idea of what's what's real and what's not to uh, a a stylistic place even. I really laughed out loud when I was reading the play when he arrives on the 77th floor and he sees the view. He's never seen the view. He just yells, what am I looking at? It's a beautiful (laughs) moment. It's great. And so, uh, yeah, our our actor, Ian Downs, Downs, yeah, is, is... Wonderful! He turns around and just starts screaming. <laughs> it's hilarious. I was going to say next. Tell me about the cast. Who is in this? Um, yeah. So Ian Downs is our Sagus, and it's a big cast. It's nineteen people. So we have seven named characters, and then four associates, and six account ants, and then three guards. Um, which, if you count up, one of those people overlaps. So yes, Ian Downs is Sagus. Bill is Stephen Moore, and Fred is Ronnie Rice, and I have one more guy. Aston is Cody Grasher, Grasher. Mm-hmm. 
So those and are Stella. gents, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, Stella is played by Asher Alt. Claire is played by Caroline Apel. And Rose is played by Rachel Robinson. And are they all theater majors? Not all of them. Um, Ronnie is a social work major. Rachel, I think, is journalism. And I think in our chorus, we have a few other non-majors. Uh, so there's a there's a mix. And I like I like working with MU theater folks because we get people from all over, and sometimes we'll we'll convert them into theater majors <laughs> or double majors. But uh, but we love having people from different with different perspectives because I think it gives more diversity to the rehearsal space and. I just went to see Songs for a New World mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, which was oh, yeah. phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And again, I, you know, I, I'd interviewed uh, a Joy, the director, and so I knew that some of them were not theatre majors. And so all through the uh, musical, I was sitting there thinking, I have no idea which of these people mm-hmm. is not a theatre major because they are all <laughs> so ridiculously <laughs> talented. So it's it's great that you know you don't have to be a theatre major to be in a performance, and you often have community people, not just students, that are in right. your shows too. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are two groups of supporting actors, I call them, in the play, which I think Sheila captures just you know, really perfectly. There are the vloggers and there are the account ants, which again <laughs> made me laugh. So talk about, talk about their role and their kind of dialogue, because the vloggers is hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they're great. They've been, the, the vloggers especially, the, the associates, are hard because the way she writes the stage directions, she says things like, like all of their dialogue sounds like it's very extreme and it's like in all caps and things like that. But she also says in the stage directions that they're supremely bored about right. everything. Um, so it, it's been hard to sort of find that balance. And we've talked a lot about like you have to be interesting for the internet, right? So that people will watch you, but really are you're not as invested as you seem in it. Uh, and they're they're each a really distinct character like a stereotype Mm -hmm. um we've got the the guy who thinks he's a rapper and the conspiracy theorist and the uh oh what does mark vital is our costume designer and he has great names for them um (laughs) like the vegan chic or something like that and then one of them thinks he's a kardashian um so so those are fun um yep and then the accountant so those are each sort of aggressively individual and the accountants are the opposite right they all of their lines they all say together right as a unit and it's like a long complicated line about like percentages and business things that they all have had to memorize and now say in unison and they so they work as a team and they do a lot of like supporting each other and um yeah, and, and lifting each other. And I told them they do everything really inefficiently. So when they go to, like, pass a paper over, they have to pass it through, like, three different people before they can hand it to the person. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and one of, one of the things that I find fascinating about those two groups is how they support the different generations of business and of sort of... Uh, office atmosphere that we have the account ants who are kind of the old guard um and what we think of as the sort of like i don't i don't the the boring not very individualized um sort of workers uh in your ants in your anthill uh and then and then in the um, more modern generation, we have those like bored hipster who say everything ironically and are not so interested in work as 
their own personal obsession with with uh, technology and being you know noticed online mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So it, it's kind of like the the parallel of how of how technology has transitioned uh, in the workplace. It it is a hilarious play. Now tell us the dates of the play when it's on. It's only on for is it on for one weekend or two? Yep, just one weekend. Just one weekend. Yep. And what are the dates and how do people get tickets for it? Um, so we open on Halloween and we run through that weekend. So that's the the thirty first, first, second, third, right? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And the, yep. the fourth is Sunday. And then on the fourth we have a matinee. So the thirty first, first, second, third, the show's at seven thirty. And then on the fourth it's at two o'clock? Two o'clock. Two o'clock. Okay, okay. And tickets, I think, are $16. $16. That right? They can be purchased at the Rheinsberger box office um, between two and five. Uh, you can also go onto the website, which I believe is theater.missouri.edu, the MU Theater website, yeah. and get tickets through there. Yep. And it is not sold out yet, so people can still get tickets. Right. But it is only one weekend. So if you want to see the excellent Fever Dream by mm-hmm. Sheila Callahan, now produced by MU Theater Department, <laughs> and directed by Lady Van Sant with the dramaturg Taylor Cleaner, then um, do hurry over and get tickets. I don't think anyone's going to be disappointed. I cannot wait to come see the <laughs> It's a fun show. Come see our <laughs> yeah, I want to see the stapler. I want, I want, to, I want to interview with the stapler afterwards. <laughs> Thank you so much to Lainey Van Sant and Taylor Sklena. Favor Dream opens at the Rheinsberger Theatre next Wednesday and continues through the weekend. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia and after the break, we'll be back with Emerson Van Roekel and Donna Cosmo to talk about next weekend's Citizen Jane Film Festival. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And I feel extremely lucky that we get to talk to Emerson Van Ruckel and Donna Kozlowski. Hope I pronounced your names very good. Yeah, very, very good. well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> about next weekend's Citizen Jane Film Festival. I feel like I'm having my own private preview party. <laughs> Tips and insights. So hello, Emerson and Donna. Hi. Hi. Do you good go by Emerson you. or do you go by Emma? Oh, Emerson is fine. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> you never know. People's emails sometimes doesn't yeah. reflect their full name. Anyway, start off by telling me what each of your responsibilities are for the festival. Do you want to go first? Sure. I'm the press coordinator for Citizen Jane Film Festival. This is my first year acting as press coordinator and so uh, that's been fun it's been a learning experience and I'm really enjoying it and um, she's also a Stevens student I would like to point yeah. out a lovely <laughs> Stevens student because um, of course Citizen Jane takes place on the Stevens College campus um, and I am Donna Kozlowski I am the director of programming at Citizen Jane <laughs> and how long have you been doing that this is my second year doing it so okay. I'm relatively new relatively new <laughs> so back in 2005 there was a Citizen Jane lecture series born alongside Stevens digital filmmaking program how did we get from a lecture series to an internationally recognized film festival in 13 years? Well, it seems like um, as the lecture series progressed, it became more and more evident how there was a lack of women working in the film industry, um, which has become sort of public conversation now, but wasn't back then. Um, so the bigger in the issue became and the more holes and gaps that, that Stephen saw specifically for women in the industry, the bigger the festival became. It, it was There needed to be more opportunities for women to network. There needed to be more opportunities for women to show their films. So what started as just a, a discussion 
just blossomed into a bigger, bigger discussion and um, continues to change as more issues arise. You know, like now women, more women are working in the industry. So we are realizing that a lot of these conversations we, we still need to have, but we don't need to have the same way. So um, we're sort of focusing more on like um, workshops and hard skills, because now that women are allowed to work in the industry, um, they need to have a different type of conversation and education. There are lots of other women's festivals globally, some very specific women's rights, lesbian, feminist, horror, African descent, (laughs) Asian women. So how does Citizen Jane seek to differentiate itself? What makes this festival kind of unique within that global arena? Do you want to answer that? Sure. I think that Citizen Jane is unique because it focuses specifically on education. It is, like Donna said, it's at Stevens, uh, Stevens College, and we have a film program there, of which I'm a student. And uh, we focus a lot on, it's a teaching film festival, so we talk to the filmmakers, and the filmmakers talk to the students, and they ask real-world questions, like, what is it like to be a woman in this industry? How did you get your first big break? And, like, have those intimate discussions and build mentorships and build uh, build relationships within the industry. And I think that Stevens College and uh, Citizen Jane is really good at fostering that relationship. And I think that makes it really unique. Yeah, and also, um, I actually used to work at a different women's film festival. It was the Women's Film Festival up in uh, Brattleboro, Vermont. It's been around for a few decades. And um, after working there and working at Citizen Jane, um, from a programming perspective, I like that we're not so narrow. We're not a specific issue. We're not a specific genre. My job as a programmer, I feel, is to show the range in which women can work and have been working. Um, We make horror films. We make westerns. We make everything. Um, And it's really important for me to get away from that stigma of women's film or romantic comedy. Last night I said rom-com and, and the host was like, what's that? I was like, oh, I'm so proud you don't know. Um, <laughs> so Sadly, yes. I do know what that is. <laughs> so yeah, I think for, as a, from a programming perspective, for me, it's that, that I show the range of women um, working in the industry. I mean, despite all these film festivals, there is a really shocking number that you have on your website, which says only 2% of the top 700 films produced by the U.S. film industry over the last seven years have been made by women. So where is the disconnect? Is it that is it that there are not enough women directors or they're not getting jobs or people won't fund them? Where's the disconnect? I feel like it's a combination. I mean, yeah, yeah I, feel I, like would, uh, I would I would agree with that. It's a little bit of everything. I think for for um, for me, the way the place that I sort of see the disconnect is there are plenty of women who want to do the work. They're just not being mentored, or I think it is mentorship. They're just not being mentored or connected to the industry in the way that a lot of men are able to. We actually had a filmmaker come last year, and she wrote me recently and was like, "I've been mentoring a lot of people lately, but only men." Are coming to be mentored like so there's this sort of like pipeline of guys being mentored by other directors or now I guess women directors as well um, and there hasn't been for women and I feel like Citizen Jane since it is more um, networking education um, one-on-one discussion based um, we're trying to foster those mentorships in that way um, and funding of two course I, I of course I don't feel like um, women have been allowed to make big budget movies in the past so we haven't been allowed to make a lot of money and now that there's been success on that front um wonder woman everyone uh mm-hmm. <laughs> i feel like that's that's happening more and more too so so yeah a lot of different things are contributing to those numbers i wonder if it's a little bit like they always say with the sciences you know with stem education that you know girls will start out studying sciences and then they'll just drop out they don't feel supported and so i wonder whether it's the same in film there's lots of film study programs that are attended by women but there's something that stops them then getting from that excitement of being a student and being a film study 
study program to then making movies and you know what what goes wrong and I wonder whether it is just funding on your website you have a lot of shorts Mm -hmm. and I wonder whether it's easier for women to make shorts because they're not looking for such a large amount of funding that is difficult to get and whether it's easier to fund a short oh definitely yeah Yeah. and I feel like that's the case for that's the case for all filmmakers really Um, they're just shorter and easier to produce Um, and I feel like a lot of women um, who have been working in the industry there's more like producers that have been working in this industry as women that are now becoming directors or now producing more um, female work Um, we do have one film this year Angels Wear White and that woman came from a producing background for for years and years and years and this is her her directorial debut Um, so I do think that there are women who are funding other women now in to make short films to sort of start their career and jumpstart their ideas we were just talking about Sheila Callahan the playwright in the last segment of the show and uh, she I read in an interview that she had said she's not required to look good as a writer but she knows that she shows up to a meeting in a flattering outfit she gets a much better reaction than if she shows up in jeans and sneakers which is what male writers turn up in so I guess within film too there were just really egregious double standards for yeah, what women for get sure. away with and what men get away with yeah I actually had a chide a um, professor two days ago because um, last year I had a filmmaker and she said I didn't have to worry about what I needed to pack for this festival and yeah she, she didn't need to bring her makeup she felt like she didn't need to wear the like smart suit um and um, the professor in the class was like, well, not filmmakers. We just wear jeans and sneakers. And I was like, male filmmakers can wear right. the jeans and sneakers. Yep. And he kind of blushed a bit. And I'm, so- <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> it's true. So we're about 18 months out now from the birth of the hashtag MeToo movement. And I wondered if you'd started to see a wave of narrative and documentary films coming through by women about that movement. I would say yes. Um, this is something. This has been something, though, that we have talked at Citizen Jane specifically about for quite a while. And uh, it's interesting seeing like the public awareness be raised as uh, this whole conversation has developed. But this year, in particular, I've seen a couple of shorts that uh, talk about the Me Too issues specifically and it's interesting and it's great it's good to see that we're talking and we're having this discussion and i think that citizen change is a good place to have that because of our history of talking about those issues yeah and at the same time it's having an effect i wasn't expecting um more women are getting jobs and it's harder for us to get women to come to our festival yeah which is <laughs> which a good problem to have it's a great <laughs> problem to have but it has been sort of a scheduling nightmare um mm. but yeah that is one outcome that i wasn't expecting um but I also I also don't particularly like focusing on that movement in the way that way and programming that many films that discuss that issue because again I want I want the work to speak for itself in a lot of ways and I think it does. <laughs> so yeah, let's move on to this year's Citizen Jane Film Festival. Um, Donna, do you have a, like an overarching theme for the festival, or is it is it based on the individual films? There's not really a theme that runs through. Things. No, there's not so much a theme. I mean, like I said earlier, I do like to sort of express a wide range of genre and. Um, style uh, so I think if anything um, eclectic is my theme <laughs> <laughs> it does look very eclectic from looking at the list that are coming up well, what is the process for getting your work chosen for the film festival um, well, unlike most festivals, we do take a large number of our pro- a large percentage of our programming from submissions. Most film festivals are pre-programmed. Um, people's friends, people they know, people who've been in the industry. Um, this year, I think sixty-six percent of our our program is from submissions, and of course, that includes shorts. So there's more shorts than features that are submissions. Um, so yeah, so uh, in that way, I go through all the submissions. We have a screening process with a bunch of um, community members and students who watch the films, male and female. 
Um, and we we um, assess them in that way. And then I also do a ton of research the entire year. Um, I follow film festivals. I follow other programming. I reach out to distributors to ask what they're doing. I reach out to filmmakers I know. I think filmmakers that I know and then getting recommendations from them is very important to me because it's that's how you found the, find the people that you, you haven't heard of yet and people haven't heard of yet. But in the artistic communities, they're already being celebrated. Um, so uh, yeah, lots of lots of work, lots of research. <laughs> How many submissions do you get? This year we got over a thousand. Yeah, it was it was one thousand thirty five. I know the number well. <laughs> yeah, that was a record number for us, and I'm I'm couldn't. I was astounded by the quality of the submissions. I had to reject so many things that I wish I could have programmed, and I just didn't have room. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> Are you hoping to expand the festival in terms of how many venues you have? Because all of the play, all of the films just play once, right? So if you if yeah. you miss it, you miss it. There's mm-hmm. no chance to have a second go round and. and yeah, I mean, we, I don't, I, I feel like we can't grow much more than we already have in terms of venue and space and, and all that. Um, but I, I'm interested in the possibility of maybe starting something off season, um, whether it's a film series or some kind of um, Vimeo channel, something like that, that focuses on the films that we d- couldn't program and didn't have space to program. I don't know. I, I really think that there were enough this year that I'm just devastated to not be able mm. to fit. So I need to find a way. How do you then choose is it just you want to have an eclectic collection how do you decide which one is in and which one gets the sorry letter there's so many factors i mean the the logistical ones space uh, time um i mean then there's also tone i can't really have two or three or five extremely depressing um films in one program so yeah for me i think it's the tonal balance that's the the hardest thing to juggle because that's so specific and it really is a balancing act between the films not not um it's no um judgment on the film itself unfortunately so you have 18 am i right you have 18 feature or longer films and then how many shorts do you have 78 <laughs> i know that number <laughs> yeah this year um last year i had this horrible experience where a filmmaker said uh, a shorts filmmaker said i couldn't find my film on the website so this year i made sure that each film had its own page each short film had its own page on the website which meant 78 entries <laughs> short films which is why i'm very familiar with how many <laughs> <laughs> and then you have grouped them together so you have a missouri made mm-hmm. which is all local filmmakers mm-hmm. or local to missouri um and then you have one that deal with you know family and relationships and I forget what the other ones are but you've you've grouped them all together really cleverly so did that was that after the fact after you'd chosen them or did you choose films to kind of fit the segments that you wanted to yeah at Citizen Jane there's um, a few shorts programs that are annual they happen every single year Um, Secret Lives of Girls which is teenage um, filmmakers this year it's very dark I don't know what's going on with teenagers (laughs) it's the world I know the world is dark (laughs) Uh, and then Emerging Voices which is student film MFA students um, Missouri made what am I missing I'm missing uh, also just you know Steven's students there's a couple in there and Steven's alum oh yeah but like the short what are the other shorts programs there's oh, Missouri made which is um, all well, I know there's a under the moon under the moon which is horror and genre so so we have um, most of the programs are already there we do have a new one this year um, Vimeo ladies with lenses is actually going to make an appearance so um, Vimeo the streaming platform is bringing um, their one of their programmers 
Maggie Noretsky, and she's going to host a few filmmakers and have her own um, lineup of films that she's chosen from Vimeo submissions that she really finds to be um, strong and good. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a lot of directors and writers who attend the festival with their film, and you also have a number of films from way far away, China, New mm-hmm. Zealand, Kenya, lots of European ones. Is there a requirement that somebody from the film attends the festival, or you, you invite them, but they have to make their own way here, I guess, because it's expensive? I mean, it really, it, it's a case-by-case basis. You know, we do have um, a summit that takes place on the first day, and that's like an issue-based symposium. So if there's a filmmaker whose film speaks to whatever that issue is, we'll usually bring them out as part of the part of that event um you know i found at citizen jane that the audiences care less about the filmmakers presence um which was interesting to me because i always thought everyone wants to go to everyone wants to meet the filmmaker but i feel like the people that come from the community to the film festival they're they're interested in the filmmaker they're interested in in women's issues but they really just want to see a good film (laughs) so so that hasn't hampered me i try to get as many people as i can um again it's a case by case basis on the film and where it fits in our in our program but um yeah i I find that sometimes there's a filmmaker here and there's very little people in the audience and i don't want to do that to them either (laughs) you know um but yeah that's that's my answer for that so as we have you here the week before and we can get a preview tell us what are the films that the must see what what is on your list of must see films i want to hear emerson's must see first (laughs) yes i do because i've lived with these films for a year yeah (laughs) Well, uh, there's one in particular that I'm really excited about. It's called High Fantasy. And uh, the summit, what we're talking about in the summit this year is who can tell your story and representation and who's allowed to tell what story. If it it has to be personal or if you can tell something that doesn't really relate to you. And High Fantasy, I think, relates into that really well. And it's going to be a really fun, kind of humorous, but then also serious. It's going to deal with different social issues, different political issues and identity issues. It's going to be a fantastic film. I'm really excited for it. And that it. one is set in South Africa yes. and it's about a group of teenagers that go out on a camping trip and the usual arguments and you know mm-hmm. bickering and then they wake up and they've got different like they've swapped bodies it's like mm-hmm. yeah. your your brain your mind inside someone else's body right but these different people they have such different identities there's like women of color and there's men who are white and there's all kinds of different people but they wake up in each other's bodies and how do they navigate that world it's really interesting and i'm so excited to see it and when is that showing do you remember Ooh, Ooh. Yeah. i didn't write that down never mind saturday, anyway saturday, saturday. yeah it's saturday, saturday midday sunday, i think uh, i'm oh, sorry no. i believe Hi, it's saturday midday Hi, it's called High Fantasy. It's a, it's a comedic psychological narrative film, mm-hmm. obviously, not a... <laughs> <laughs> it's a documentary. Actually, one person did ask me if it was a documentary because it is a found footage film as well, so it's mostly shot on cell phones of the people who are in the film. Um, so it, it appears like a documentary, but it's not quite. Um, oh, we have someone... That'll be Sunday. Sunday. Sunday at 4 p.m. Yeah. in Ooh. Mecklenburg is when High Fantasy will be playing. Thank you. Okay, Sarah. so that's that's on the must-see list. I have I have two. Watch well, two, three, maybe three on the must-see list. I am. Um, I'd love to see Yellow is Forbidden, which yes. is about couture fashion in China, and one particular, the most famous Chinese couture artist who is trying to break into the Paris couture market and the difficulty of doing that. And that is a documentary, Yellow is Forbidden, and I think that's on Saturday lunchtime. And then um, the one that I, I, I already have tickets for is I think we're alone now. Yay. Oh my gosh, oh, I'm so, so excited that you got tickets for that. That film is so good. Tell us about that. 
film? Uh, well, first off, it's directed by Reed Morano, who is the director of Handmaid's Tale. Um, Reed actually had a film at Citizen Jane a few years ago. It was her directorial debut called uh, Meadowlands. She comes from a cinematography background, so this film is beautiful. I said last night, every frame is a painting. It's just gorgeous in every possible way. Um, and it's, it's very quiet. It's a quiet film, so the images are what fills the screen and what makes the story go forward. Um, and it stars Peter Dinklage, um, Game of Thrones uh, station agent, which is also one of my favorite movies. Um, and he he is the last man on Earth. He wakes up and there's no more humanity and there's him. And he's a librarian, so he goes about doing his job and he starts to catalog the things he finds and the people he finds and the bodies he finds and sort of create this new world for himself. And then all of a sudden one day there's fireworks and a car crash and Elle Fanning is there. Um, and she is she's alive and he has to figure out what that means and how that fits into his world and if he wants it to fit into his world and then there's twists beyond belief that I can't give you <laughs> yeah so when I saw it I it just I, I my like jaw dropped I wasn't expecting it at all and I was just like what is happening this is amazing um, so yeah I'm really I, I really recommend that film for everyone um, it's sort of flown under the radar post Sundance um, and it's just gotten released um, by a distributor so I'm I was very lucky to get that. I spent a lot of time and energy. That seems like a really big one that yeah. is coming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we're alone now. And that's on Saturday early. I think it's at seven on Saturday evening at the Mecklenburg okay. Playhouse. That's that's going to be a good one. And then the closing movie I'm kind of fascinated by. It's a documentary by the subject matter, which talk, it's called Bathtubs Over Broadway. Um, mm -hmm. It's the closing night movie. And it's about something I've never heard of, the subculture of industrial musicals. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about that? Um, so I guess in the the 60s was sort of the heyday of the industrial musical. Um, and companies would hire uh, playwrights and musicians and all kinds of actors and actresses to make these in-house productions for their staff about whatever their product was. And I mean, from hamburgers to bathtubs to toilets to cars. It was, I think, tires was one of my favorite ones in the film. Um, so yeah, there was this strange subculture. And apparently, since it's um, industrial, it paid very well. There was lots of money. So a lot of stars got their start that way, like Martin Short apparently that was how he came to be he he did all of these things it turns out actually uh our dean gail she was in industrial musicals um she said i sang about pie um, <laughs> so i guess they were all they were all kinds and um so this man who actually is a writer for david or was a writer for david letterman he discovered these he's a record collector and he started collecting these records and um he found this whole underground community of people who had done them and it's sort of his exploration through that but it also as the film's taking place, David Letterman retires, and he, the man who's who's the star, he starts to sort of deal with his own creative output and retiring and what that means and what that looks like, and he kind of does that through the industrial musical. So it's not just sort of a industrial musical expose portrait. Um, it also deals with this man and his journey and his emotions and feelings in a way that I felt like paralleled the subject so well and so so kindly and caring. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful film. And uh, is there footage of these industrial musicals, or is it all sound? There's some footage, um, not a ton, but there's there's the most I've seen is in the film itself. There's some on YouTube. Um, yeah, they're pretty insane, and it seems that there is still a slight culture of it happening. There's there are some modern clips of the industrial musical in the film as well. I'm not giving them away. <laughs> 
But these are original productions. This mm-hmm. is not like they're they're not redoing Sweeney Todd at Hormel Spam Factory. I mean, they are actually writing. There's writers involved that uh-huh. have written these productions using the um, product. Yeah, yeah. And that he actually visits one man who did most of the scores for them. And in his attic, he has all of the scores stacked upon stacks of these these things that he wrote from scratch. It was They were huge, huge productions, just like Broadway musicals. But um, I say uh, board, Broadway, what do I say? Broadway to boardroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very strange culture. And if I think if we're lucky, we might have somebody singing. Oh, <laughs> guest appearance. <laughs> okay, well, I have tickets for that one too, so I'm okay. good. Oh, good. <laughs> so what about in the shorts? Any must-see shorts? Ooh, let's see. Do you have a particular favorite? I mean, do you? Uh, you know, I do. I have okay. some that are in the... Uh, in the summit short program okay. that are going to be really fantastic i think they're going to spark a really great conversation um oh gosh what's the, what's the one cross my heart yeah, yeah cross my heart there we go yeah cross my heart is really it's fantastic it's beautiful and heartbreaking and uh complicated and the characters are really well written and uh they all have like their own depth to them but that one is awesome and that's going to be in the summit shorts program which is called who can tell your story yes Mm -hmm. and that's going to be really great so how do people get tickets presumably you can you still buy a pass or is that sold out or finished where we're at on that i know that the last day to buy tickets was today our box office our box office does open on tuesday at 4 p.m on steven's campus you can find our box office hours online in the um tickets is it what's the tab exactly sarah i know you're looking at it tickets yeah if you press the tickets button up at the top it will give you the hours to our box office which opens next week but online ticket sales have ended um and uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Good job I got in there yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know, I know. In the nick of time. Do you have a system um, kind of like True False where you have a queue system? Mm-hmm. So you don't, you have some tickets held in reserve for all the venues. You don't sell out on all the passes. Yeah, yeah, we, we do it. So if you show up at the venue, um, we do have a separate line. So after all the pass holders get in, after all the ticket holders get in, if there are tickets left, and especially in Mecklenburg, which is a very large theater, um, you'll get into the, the movies. Uh, it, we really haven't had a problem turning people away. Talking Horse is one of our venues, and that only seats 75. So we have had some issues there, but... Um, um, your chances are really high of getting into every film. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have three venues, Mecklenburg, uh, Talking Horse, is there another one? Yeah, the Warehouse mm-hmm. Theater is Oh, okay. On, yeah, and then opening night is at Windsor Auditorium, which is also on campus. That's for the Friday night opening mm-hmm. movie. For Little Wood. Mm-hmm. But you yeah. also have the Summit is on Thursday at five o'clock, and that's mm-hmm. kind of an, an early event, and that's, that's the uh, panel discussion about who can tell your story. Right. Mm-hmm. So that starts it, and then there's the opening night on Friday night, and then all day Saturday and all day Sunday. Mm-hmm. And then also Friday there's the film school that we have so there's these different um, sessions that are sort of like uh, not quite panels usually discussions Um, this year we are doing a cinematography workshop Um, so that takes place on Friday you can find more information about that on our website Um, it's really good for students especially the cinematography workshop it's going to be hands-on one-on-one with a person who does commercial work and um, artwork and all kinds of cinematography her name's Ali Migliori she's really young really accessible and really lovely okay and this is all next weekend is there anything else that we haven't covered you want to say quickly about the festival before we close of 
the uh, the free part of the festival that we have that is accessible and open to the public. That's uh, Under the Moon, and that's at Logboat Brewery. And uh, that is Saturday evening? It's Friday. Friday And there's an old horror shorts. Yes. Okay. The, the, some of my favorite shorts that I have seen at, at Citizen Jane has been in that particular section. Yeah, and it's a good like intro to the fest for people who haven't been before. Um, I've also heard a lot of women say, it's the only thing my boyfriend will come to, which is ridiculous, <laughs> but but true. It's a good intro to the fest to sort of see if, see what we do and how we do it and um, have a good time. And you don't need tickets for that. You can just no, come along. just show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emerson and Donna. They were here talking about the Citizen Jane Film Festival, which takes place next weekend, the first weekend in November. And you can find out more at citizenjanefilmfestival.com. Org. 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 I thought so. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. For Thank you, us. ladies. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts, and we are going to end the show as usual with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. So today, Friday at 2 p.m. this afternoon, the Museum of Art and Archaeology has the latest in their lecture series. This month, exploring Hogarth's series Marriage a la Mode, and it talks about also about 18th century British satire with Professor Michael Yonam. This weekend is your final chance to see the excellent production of Sweeney Todd, the Devil Barber of Fleet Street at Talking Horse Theatre. Curtain rises at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow with a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets are $15 if you're lucky. This show has sold out most nights of its three-week run, but uh, give them a call and see if they've got tickets available. Also on the boards tonight is Marion or the True Tale of Robin Hood at the Stevens College Playhouse. This is a one-weekend-only production with shows tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 and 2pm matinees tomorrow and Sunday. At Skylark Bookshop on 9th Street tonight, you can hear Charles Shields talk about his book, The Man Who Wrote the Perfect Novel, about the life of John Williams, who wrote the acclaimed novel set in Columbia called Stoner. His talk starts at 7.30. In Jefferson City, tonight is the Around Town Gallery Crawl, organised by Capital Arts, and that runs from 4.30 till 8.30. And at the Blue Note, you can dress up early in your Halloween outfit. It's the 80s versus 90s Halloween Costume Ball, and that's tonight at 8. Tomorrow, Saturday afternoon, at 3 p.m., Resident Arts is holding a grant writing a workshop for artists. The class will be taught by Madeleine Lemieux and it costs $49. Uh, Saturday evening at Rose Park is another chance to give your Halloween costume an early outing with the second annual Great Midwestern Boo Grass Bash with Buffalo Wobs and the Price Hill Hustle, Mercer and Johnson and Grass Fed. That show starts at 7. Sunday at midday, Marcella's Ghost plays at uh, Cooper's Landing. And Sunday afternoon, the Missouri Symphony and the Missouri Symphony League host a piano showcase at the Missouri Theatre featuring some of Missouri's student pianists. That starts at 4pm and tickets are $10. On Tuesday evening, the Stable Boys Improv Troupe return to the Talking Horse Theatre for their Halloween special, Don't Go in the Stable. Showtime is 7.30 and tickets are just $8. At Jesse Hall, the pioneering dance troupe, Ailey 2, will be on stage at 7. Tickets for that are $18. And at Rose Music Hall, it's a tight, tight fright night with Loose Loose, Pink Caravan, Jaywood and Ravs, and that's $5 entrance. Wednesday is Halloween and it is also the opening night for MU Theatre's production of the black comedy Fever Dream at the Rheinsberger Theatre. That's going to be great. The curtain rises at 7.30 and that show continues through the weekend, but it's a one weekend only show. Tickets are $16. At the Blue Note, the Rocky Horror Picture Show returns, of course, hosted by Mark the Master Chambers, and that show starts at 9pm 
p.m. And tickets are 10. That's next Wednesday. Thursday, the 1st of November, is a busy night with lots of options. At 5.30, there's an early peek behind the filmmaking curtain with a Citizen Jane Summit event called Who Can Tell Your Story at the Laney Rainey Wood Hall Kimball Ballroom. Wall Street Studios will hold its annual fundraiser, which will include a special performance by Greenhouse Theatre Project. Tickets for that are $30 and include food, wine, beer and live music. That's from 5.30 till 8. On November the 1st is also opening night for Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Agnes of God, starring Mary Shaw, Ronnie Rossi and Sarah Jost. The show will run for eight shows over two weekends and that show starts at 7.30 and tickets are 14. And finally, the band Perry will be at the Blue Note next Thursday on November the 1st. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my special guest engineer and good friend, Sarah Catlin. Next week, Monica Palmer will be stepping back into the Speaking of the Arts hot seat while I am in Kansas City to launch the Ekphrasis Art and Literary Show. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.